0: Constitutional position of Hindus, ineffective or non existent cultural, religious, and educational rights. So, if you recall the three institutions, right, they closely tie into these three schools, temples, and family. But in terms of the interpretation and application by the courts and also by the numerous laws that have been made by various state and central governments, it's all you know translated into only laws and acts and judgments against. At least the majority of them are against the Hindu religion. Control of these three institutions, if Hinduism as a dharmic society should, you know, needs to survive and grow explicitly for our community only. And there are certain deficiencies, please take them away. So, here also we are saying the same thing, you know, let it be, let it not be appropriated for promotion of any religion. Thanks, everyone. Uh, She said, I'm uh, Hari Prasad, I work in the software industry in uh, Bangalore. So over the past uh, few years, uh, I had the opportunity to study some of these uh, areas related to discrimination of uh, uh, Hindus from various perspectives and uh, from a legal and constitutional perspective, though that's not my domain, uh, you know, in terms of my work. uh, That interested me more because this seems like the most foundational element um, and, and the biggest damage. I think for uh, discrimination against Hindus is coming from uh, what's encoded in our constitution. So that interest led me to uh, you know, uh, explore and study this field a little bit more and over the past year, we had the opportunity to work with Srijan Foundation and various other people uh, in coming up with this uh, Hindu Charter of Demands and uh, the first of those demands uh, is clearly the need for amending um, four or five of the articles of our constitution. So, this talk is about that, you know, why we are asking for uh, uh, some fundamental changes to some of the critical uh, articles of our constitution. A number of people have, uh, you know, contributed to making this slide set and, you know, we presented it in various forums. So, I have the opportunity here and, uh, you know, thankful. So, I will go through the slide set first 40 45 minutes and then we can have, uh, you know, based on your questions, we can have a discussion. Um uh, before we get to the actual uh, details of each article and then you know what the issue with each of those uh, are and then what change we are asking, I will just take three or four minutes maybe uh, trying to explain why the handicap introduced by you know these articles are especially uh, troublesome for Hindus. <laughs> so, you know this is about a case for removal of constitutional disparity. So uh, some of this is theory, of course. So that's why I'll skip through very, very fast. But we all know, you know, you know, when we talk about Hindu, we are also, you know, talking about the greater uh, the, uh, set of Dharmic, uh, you know, uh, religions, so to say. Uh, so the the discrimination is actually about uh, against all uh, sects and subsects of, you know, uh, the the Dharmic tradition. And of course, uh, Sanatana Dharma says. Um, Serve Dharma, so Dharma shall protect you. Which means every person at the individual level, at the group level, at the governmental level needs to first give to Dharma to expect Dharma to you know uh, protect it and you know give back. That is like the fundamental philosophy which almost all of us you know by now know. So uh, I mean, where does this come from? Where does this um, you know? What is the philosophy behind this? Uh, our philosophy you know believes that man is inherently an interdependent being. And, and this is where the. Now, I have a next slide which compares our philosophy with the prevalent philosophy of the day, where we say we are an interdependent being, whereas the prevalent notion is that we are independent beings. So, I think that's where the basic difference uh, in terms of what the constitution uh, achieves to grant and what we actually want uh, comes from. So, we are dependent on a number of things other, you know, fellow humans, nature, society overall. Uh, and therefore, I can make a case for myself by actually helping, being of help to others. You know, that's the premise. If I give, I I qualify to get. Okay. So therefore, a dharmic society is a society of give and take in that order. <laughs> and of course, the premise of modern cultures, which is what reflects in our constitution also is about, you know, a rights-based society. So the moment an individual is born, he is guaranteed certain rights, you know, and then Everybody else has to work towards making that happen to that particular individual. So it's you know fundamentally orthogonal, and and these privileges and these rights are inviolable in the sense irrespective of the contribution of the individual. Forget contribution, but even if the individual is harmful to society, he is still guaranteed those rights. I mean we have multiple cases from the past uh, decade or so where even you know hardcore criminals. You know there is there are petitions to you know let them free or at least spare them from the gallows and so on right so that is all you know derived from this um, belief so the conflict between the dharmic and liberal approaches is that you know uh, dharmic society expects individuals to approach with a sense of duty, whereas the prevalent notion is that we approach it with a sense of entitlement clearly they are you know contradicting so because our basic premise is harmony with fellow. Humans. So, if we give and take, then there's harmony between uh, individuals and in groups and societies and so on. Whereas, the, the uh, first result of a rights based society is that it instigates conflict with others because obviously everybody can't get the same right. I mean, there's a limited, there's a pie and then there's a limited share that everybody can get, but you're guaranteed the whole. So one man's rights are another man's obligations. We've seen numerous laws in this country where you know the burden is transferred from one section of society to the other. There are numerous excuses and you know in some cases justifications, but but it is true that it's a transfer of burden. So that and and that is not what a dharmic society is. So it, it actually insists upon a sense of sacrifice and enjoyment. And therefore, the, the basic point I wanted to make about all the, I mean, these three, four slides is that such a mindset when we say we want to you know cultivate a dharmic society, we want to be a dharmic uh, nation and so on and so forth. Whatever we are saying, whatever lakshanas as we call it, whatever attributes that an individual or a group should uh, develop, it cannot be imposed. You know, it, has to be, it has to come from within. That is like the fundamental problem with why rights-based approach will not work for us. So it is difficult to impose and therefore at least three institutions become critical for us. You know, now uh, many will argue and I am sure some of you also may share that uh, outlook that when I uh, talk about these three institutions in the next slide uh, that it is important for all religions. You know, I am talking about schools and temples and you know, uh, family. But it is especially important for a Dharmic religion. That's the point I'm trying to make. And perhaps if you have some kind of a hierarchy of what is important, this is number one for us. Because like I said, you cannot impose, you cannot give a checklist or a you know a cheat sheet and say, just follow all of these, you know, five times a day you do this and once in your lifetime you go there. I mean, we, we do have all of that, but that's secondary. You pick up, for example, the Smritis of uh, any Rishi. I mean, we have a ton of them. All of them talk about the the lakshanas of dharma i you mean know, what how can i identify you know whether an individual is dharmic or not the surprising thing is almost none of them talk about uh, devotion or uh, worship of god I mean this may come as surprising to you but you know you, i don't want to uh, to highlight about what manu says on this that's like a uh, difficult smriti to talk about but you take any other smriti bhakti or worship archana etc they do not Figure in the list of the main uh, lakshanas or attributes of dharma. I mean, we have asteya, we have satya, we have kshama, we have dairya, and so on. I mean, each person differs, but those are fundamental qualities that an individual has to you know uh, develop and express. The others, which are important, they are secondary. So they are in terms of uh, you know uh, they. We need to do them in order to help develop these primary attributes. So uh, in that way, I mean. Very strictly speaking, a Dharmic society need not even be religious, and, and we have tons of examples. Right, we also include some atheist philosophies in our list of darshanas and so on, because the basic premise comes from that. So because of this, uh, because the focus is not on the uh, you know the rituals part or the you know following of rules part, these things need to be cultivated and practiced so we need to educate people we need to help them in leading a dh- uh, dharmic uh, lifestyle and we need instruments to propagate this okay so therefore those three requirements translate into control of these three institutions you know schools temples and family we need control of these three institutions if hinduism as a dharmic society should uh, you know needs to survive and grow and Leading from that, what is the current reason, in my opinion, for what we call as the dimitude? Uh, this is a term I think uh, we use uh, very frequently in all of our presentations, and you will see that uh, subsequently as well here. Uh, so, w- what is the reason, primary reason, for uh, this lack of, I mean, this dimitude or um, you know, this lack of uh, pride and confidence is because we do not have control over these three institutions. So again here you know there, there may be a question that crops up you know because uh, there are thousands and thousands of Hindus running schools and we have hundreds of thousands of temples. So what do we really mean by control of these institutions? So the remainder of the slide set is actually about that while we do run these institutions in one way or the other we don't really control them in the sense of you know what we can do what we can teach and you know uh, whom we teach and so on and so forth. So basically dimitude is you know loss of knowledge, lack of pride and thereby lack of confidence. So this is a three typical symptoms you will see with the, any Dhimmi in Hindu uh, you know, nowadays. So it has of course multiple angles. I mean uh, it's there is a problem with education. There is a problem with how we are progressing as a society and uh, there is some political angles to it and so on. There is also a constitutional and legal angle which is what... The remainder of my slides are going to focus on. So, is indeed Hindu dimitude encoded in the constitution? So, yes. So, we start our constitution starts with the premise of equality, you know, absolute equality, so to say, uh, through article 14, it says, the state shall not deny to any person equality before the law. So, this is like, when you, uh, In that specific subsection where we have started to talk about individual rights in the constitution, this is the first one. And here we are declaring that everybody is equal and there are no ifs and buts in this clause. And then the remainder of that subsection of the constitution is all about the exceptions. And that is where we have the problem. So where did this come from? I mean before we get into those specific problem areas, you know, what is the reason for this uh, discrimination? obviously 19 i think there was i mean there's been a there was lot of work in the 1930s uh, during the round table conferences and so on which kind of served as input material for our constitution and and many other conferences and discussions with various um, uh, sections of society various leaders but i think around the 1945 46 is when the constituent assembly got formed i mean some precursor work to that in the formation of the constituent assembly and then 1950 of course you know we became a republic and the constitution came into effect. So those four or five years were, you know the uh, years when the actual uh, the the crux of the work happened for writing our constitution and coincidentally uh, of course the partition also took place at that time and uh, so that was a big factor. So if you look at all these constitutional assembly debates and the various committees that were formed, the subcommittees that were formed and the deliberations. In almost every single um, committee and every single issue that they were trying to analyze, the issue of minority uh, rights and issue of uh, protection for minorities, that was a major factor. In some sense, rightly so, because obviously there was concern and especially in the 40s, I mean after the independence, the immediate aftermath and given the violence and the number of people who died and so on, this became a big concern. So, the concern was very genuine. But the way it has translated, you know, and, and, and you know, it's, it's become like an anti pattern document, so to say, you know, it started to have the opposite effect of what it was meant to have. But that was the background. So, there were explicit minority rights encoded, you know, in various articles. And in many places, the makers of the constitution actually talk about, you know, how the Hindu society, the majority community, uh, will actually take care of, take care of itself so one thing you will notice in all those debates and discussions is there was never any problem uh in discussing about majority and minority there was always open discussion so uh, you know people talking about religion people talking about what is needed for my religion and your religion and you know hindu and muslim it's splattered all over the discussion so there was there was no taboo talking about uh, these issues because obviously they they accepted the truth on the ground that it's an important factor you know uh, during the formation of the nation, unlike now where you know some of us are having challenges even talking about the Hindu Charter of Demands because you know how can you talk on a a religious basis. But hey the whole constitution itself talks on that basis that's what we are trying to highlight and uh, you know help um, or or try and correct. So so they actually uh, stated that the Hindu society can actually take care of itself. We are always going to be a majority in India. You will have the power through you know the votes and you know you'll get the government of your choice. you get whatever you want that is like a basic assumption and I think the previous video by uh, Shri Hondas Paiji beautifully brought out brought out that uh, problem now how it is actually not translating into you know the the assumption under this uh, declaration so almost nowhere in the constitution there is anything explicitly declared for Hindus. And uh, you know the other thing to go along with this is the makers of the constitution. Many of them were um, you know uh, like me in a sense. You know did, you know do not have a deeply I mean I, or, or a position of authority to judge on religious and spiritual matters. They were lawyers. They were political leaders and you know various economy economists and so on. All of them got together and took up this role of you know we'll reform Hindu religion. And that also again features prominently in the discussions and it led to many um, clauses. So what is the current constitutional position of Hindus? Ineffective or non-existent cultural, religious and educational rights. So if you recall the three institutions, right? they closely tie into these three schools, temples and family. Articles 25 to 30 specifically of the constitution heavily loaded against the Hindus. And therefore, you know, it imparts stepmotherly treatment and systematically over time our institutions are weakened. So, the first factor here, only Hindus are deprived of control over their temples and religious affairs. So, we will get to two articles out of the articles between 25 to 30. The first, I uh, we will go slightly in the reverse order just to emphasize the point, article 26, freedom to manage religious affairs. So, every religious denomination or any section thereof shall have the right to establish and maintain institutions for religious purposes, manage its own affairs and to own and acquire property and administer such property in accordance with law. So, there is no clear definition of what is a religious denomination. It is a western concept that we have borrowed. In the ideal sense, it should have translated into every subsection, every pantha or every creed that we have even in the hindu fold and that should have been identified as a religious denomination and therefore all of those you know the vaishnavas or the smarthas or the aghoris for example and so on every single subsect which has uh, a unique um, uh, uh, you know identification to it and unique practices that should have been called out as a denomination that's not the case and then to go with this we have a we have article 25 which you know uh, The first part at least is kind of neutral, it says subject to a couple of things, morality, health and public order. Each person will have the freedom of conscience and the right freely to profess and practice and propagate religion. So everybody has the right to practice religion. But then this section, the the class two under that article and then the 2 subclasses under that bring in a lot of restrictions and allow the government to exercise a lot of control. So it says the state shall not be prevented from regulating or restricting any economic, financial, political or other activity which may be associated with religious practice. And then there is a competition actually between clause A and Clause B here on which is more damaging. The second one says providing for social welfare and reform of the throwing open of Hindu religious institutions of a public character. Now, over time, this second subclass has been again, in terms of interpretation, split into two parts. So they say providing for social welfare and reform. Now that's the way the courts interpret one part. So the Constitution gives us that right. We can, you know, go in for social welfare and reform, and then also, of course, the opening up of the Hindu religious institutions. Clause A here, uh, regulating or restricting any activity. Right? There's a Healthy amount of debate during the formation of the constitution, and they cited many examples where you know religious institutions, religious gurus, and some of these baba's and all were misusing their position, and you know basically making money and running um, other stuff, non-religious stuff. So they said, how do we control? If we give unrestricted freedom to practice religion, then how does the state interfere if you know somebody is like you know profiteering or you know exploiting people? That was the basic. Uh, premise behind putting in this clause, but that's been forgotten now. So what it says is, you know, the state can enter and it can control all of these activities. Also, the other angle to this was they said, you know, uh, if let's say I'm running a temple, obviously there'll be in, you know income, there'll be money coming in, and I'll be spending uh, you know on 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 the needs of the temple, and that's uh, fundamentally economic and financial in nature. But that is not what was counted here. You know the the regular financial or economic activity to sustain the institution is not what was meant here. If you are doing, for I mean, there's a clear example. I think one of the examples is somebody says in the debates, if somebody runs a lottery, for example, in a temple, you know, or a Baba, he runs a you know Ponzi scheme, and under the garb of the you know mut or institution, that is what they wanted to prevent over here. So it is when when they say which may be associated, it actually meant apart from the religious practice, but that is not how it is interpreted now. So even the, the Seva amount that we go and offer in a temple, because it you know, is obviously money, it is currency, that is being counted as an economic and financial activity and so the state has the right to enter and control. So that is kind of a distortion of the intent of the constitution makers so how can a secular government control and manage religious places that too of only one religion now there may be one question here in those two articles there's nothing uh, specific about hindu right except the last portion about hindu religious i mean hindu uh, temples but in terms of the interpretation and application by the courts and also by the numerous laws that have been made by various state and central governments it's all you know translated into only laws and acts and judgments against at least the majority of them are against the Hindu religion. So, the, you know, based on wa- how it is transpired, we can safely say that this is actually happening only for one religion, the Hindu religion. This is of course explainable, I mean acceptable if we were a Hindu Rashtra, you know, you know uh, obviously there are people suddenly cite examples of the Vijayanagar kingdom and various other kingdoms where the kings on a daily basis used to uh, interfere, meddle and run the affairs of temples. But we are not a Hindu Rashtra. Um, uh, we, are, we are a so called secular nation, so then how can we do this? <coughs> so, the other angle to look at this is, I mean this is like a weak angle, but we wanted to call it out. If you want to meddle in the affairs of religious institutions, then you know, you, 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 I mean it's okay if it's, it's a little bit better if you meddled equally with the institutions of all religions, but that again is not happening. So it cannot pick and choose over only Hindu temples. So, what has this resulted into? Loss of pride. You know, is it that we cannot manage our temples? This is again those who believe that Hindus cannot manage temples. This is question number one that we hear saying who will, you know, uh, manage it. We have a slide or two on that and we will discuss a bit about that. But we manage so many other institutions. I mean, and we have been doing this for like thousands of years. Like, suddenly to declare that, you know, post independence, suddenly we are incapable of managing temples. Uh, oh, will you know because uh, people are corrupt and uh, mismanagement and so on. But that should have been the case with every kind of institution that uh, Hindu runs today. So you see the result of state control of uh, you know Hindu religious affairs. I mean there's so many examples. You know, week, week after week we hear about this, right? The the you know Thirumala Thirupati, uh, priest controversy. There are actually multiple angles there um you know prevention of chanting of mantras in some temples and so on commercialization of many temples the various sevas based on the money that you can give you can get a different kind of a treatment in the temple and then people go there only for those uh, um, pujas and so on misuse and misappropriation this is like the biggest you know uh, effect of this uh, especially in south india where the m- almost all the sou- uh, southern indian states have these laws controlling temples this is one big Side effect, that, or or maybe the main effect of uh, you know this rule, we simply don't know what uh, quantity of land has you know temple land has gone off. So it's it's strange to I mean it's a real contrast, right? For thousands and thousands of years, you pick up any uh, you know history material related to Bharata, you will see that kings actually donated lands, granted lands to temples. And now we have the opposite since the last 70 years where these lands are being taken away and nobody knows where they are going. And various other issues as well, you know. They are actually not managing it well, that is the summary. You know, it was governments were meant to take over temples so that they can rid the temple of the problem of management and they aggravated the problem. And the last one is also especially serious: appointment of non-Hindus in temple boards as temple employees. And this is happening in you know few of the biggest temples, you know most uh, precious and most holy temples for us. Tirupati, for example, there's a big controversy going on. So Dharma dies without temples. You know they are the life and soul of our Dharma. So today it has become like a I would say in in many of these temples, right, run by uh, government. It's as if you are running a museum or a library, I mean there is a certain stated uh, you know, function on paper and that's what happens. So they would have appointed some people, I mean so it needs to be clean, there needs to be one um, uh, archaka and then there will be certain timings and you will do some pujas, all of that is fine. But that's almost elementary in any temple, our temple served numerous other purposes, all of which are being discounted now. So, uh, it has deprived us of the institutional capacity for self-correction, self-defense and organic growth of religious leadership. So, because it's like notionally running so many of these temples, there is no real organic growth from within. And the and, uh, uh, religious and spiritual output from these temples are not up to the mark. Therefore, we must gain control our, over our temples uh, again. So, as a result of all of this material, what we are asking for, demanding, uh, as part of our hindu charter the first of the you know sub demands under point 1 is that we amend article 26 to restore the temples to hindus you would recall that there is a phrase in the current article which says for any other uh, non religious activity state can interfere what we are asking for is notwithstanding anything contained in any of those articles the state shall not control administer or manage any institution established for religious purposes you know, explicitly take back this right that the state has given. There are numerous other laws, tax laws, you know, criminal laws, and so on, which are actually sufficient, which are enough to take care of problems with corruption and mismanagement. And we don't have similar laws for uh, you know commercial entities, commercial organizations, right? So the same thing can apply. And then a couple of subpoints, just to make sure the the uh, withdrawal of the state's right is complete. You said all laws in force in the territory of India will be wide at this point. So for example we have many state governments which have these uh, HRC acts, Hindu religious and charitable endowment acts through which they take over temples. So then there will be a, like a small legal loophole saying will the existing laws continue to work and so on. So that's why we make it, we make it explicit saying none of those will be you know, valid anymore. And in future also the state shall not make any law to take over. So that is the sum and substance of this demand. Uh, Take back your, I mean withdraw your right, uh, void all existing laws and you know you shall not have the right to make any laws in future. So what happens, how to fill the void if the state withdraws? So this is like a favorite question of those who do not like this proposal, you know who takes care. Actually there are various angles. Um, In many of the South Indian states, right, when the state actually takes over it is actually coming in as just a uh, the the supreme authority there in terms of the management committee of the temple and the people who are involved in involved in the day to day administration they actually remain the same but every single action that they take is subject to the control and approval and permission of the uh, government and therefore in 90% of the cases this question is actually you know void or moot because there are people who have been traditionally managing and whether it's the village or the town, people have an arrangement there to manage the temples. Only in some big temples, the state has really completely taken over and you know many of them are government employees and so on. So there this question is valid and what we are saying is the the central government has the power to interfere in this matter because administration of religious places is on the concurrent list which means both the state government and the central government can make laws related to this. So, the center could enact a law taking best practices from some existing acts that are there and it can give a framework for management. So, for example, if you see the related to education, right, we have the RTE Right to Education Act. It's similar in nature. It's a concurrent subject and the RTE Act passed by the central government gives a framework and then each state government has made its own rules and regulations derived from it and uh, based on local needs. So, the same thing actually uh, can work for. Uh, temples if needed. So I think I have covered this in my previous thing. So there is a number of benefits and basically it will restore our pride and confidence and we can use temples for many other purposes, Dharmic purposes. So the second topic, you know, uh, the state has become the biggest proselytizer by encouraging conversion of Hindus by misuse of public funds, etc. This may sound a little... Uh, alarming or shocking to say, but that's kind of the reality of uh, you know what's transpiring. So we have Article 27 in the Constitution, which says this: No person shall be compelled to pay any taxes, the proceeds of which are specifically appropriated in payment related to any uh, religious activity, the promotion or maintenance of any religious activity. So this actually bars the state because it is you know self-declared secular nation. Actually, you know if. Uh, the, if it is interpreted in the spirit of what this was meant to be, the state cannot spend its money, the money collected from the public on any particular religion or religious denomination. But then again they have gotten clever here. So you, you see this word here which says specifically appropriated in payment. So the interpretation of this is if I am actually you know collecting a new tax, let's say I impose tax A from today and say this is going to be spent on masjids and churches. But then I collect it from all uh, citizens of India. So the interpretation is in that case, that particular tax collected is specifically appropriated for a religion or so. And therefore, you know, they'll happily say that's not allowed. But as long as this is coming from some pool where we are all paying taxes and it just goes into one consolidated fund and nobody knows how it's being split. They are saying it is not specific appropriation. Therefore, this is not applicable. So that's like a creative interpretation of this clause to do, you know, whatever appeasement that has to be done. So the consequences of ambiguity is, you know, false narrative of minoritism is created. The main thing is here, the minority politics and appeasement by misuse of public funds to the detriment of majority. So what, I mean, there are multiple angles here, right? One is the whole financial angle. We have a department of minority affairs in the center and, you know, many state governments, numerous, numerous, uh, policies and acts uh, targeting minority religions and the you know the the uh, corresponding majority act or the benefit is not there whether it's uh, scholarships whether it is um, um, easy access to uh, loans reduced interest rates um, you know many other many other forms of appeasement budgets i mean they they have a separate minority commission and minority ministry and separate budgets and so on uh by mis- misinterpreting article twenty seven so one is the uh, tax angle and the money i mean the secular state is spending the second thing is we have declared ourselves to be secular we want that notion of uh, you know religion based treatment to go away but then you create policies and you know schemes based on religion it will only deepen the sense of you know religious identity from a consumption of public goods perspective so for example uh, you know we have this uh, the first point that we are talking about here right there was this uh, sachar committee report and as a result of that various schemes were um, created uh, targeting uh, minority uh, communities one of them says that uh, wherever there are uh, con- you know minority concentrated districts i think it's called mcds you know particular region they have some geographical specifications for that if the percentage of minorities is greater than 25 or something then there are special schemes, which, which includes you know things like uh, you know, focus on creating roads, street lights, uh, easy access to loans in that area, and so on. So multiple issues with this. First of all, if you create schemes targeting you know concentrated areas, people are going to concentrate more. I mean, it's easy access to resources there, right? And secondly, it, it deepens. I mean, the money, something like a road or a street light. Or, or, or a bank loan is a public good. There is no religious identity or a religious tag in that. Each of us, based on needs and you know whatever other non-religious criteria, should be equally, uh, you know, qualified to apply for that and get it. But this is specifically targeting that. So it can only deepen the sense of uh, communal identity in the country if we go this route. I think that's the bigger problem with this uh, uh, this approach. So obviously the electoral politics and you know voting as a block is a, a big factor and even BJP falls into this trap. I mean the reason we put this is uh, uh, numerous of these schemes are still continuing. Some new ones have been added. Uh, so so uh, there is a sense of uh, um, discord there and there is a sense of uh, you know what is being stated and what is being done. There is some you know, uh, disconnect there. And therefore, the net result of this is, you know, state incentivizing and encouraging conversion of Hindus to get these benefits. So, this may again sound a little strong, but that's the reality, right? I mean, if you go down this path and make uh, availability of public goods easy, if you belong to a certain set of religions, I mean, unlike caste, for example, right, you can actually convert from one religion to the other. So, in some sense, this is actually encouraging that. It may be slow. It may happen over a long, you know, time or whatever. Or it may not even happen. Even the sense of you know lack of uh, confidence and lack of pride that the majority community feels, saying you know we are not. I mean, the state thinks that we are not uh, deserving of these. That itself is enough. That itself is like disincent incentivizing at least. If you are not incentivizing the actual you know uh, move. So when the state patronizes minorities so much and thereby encourage you know encourages, how is it different from missionaries or? you know, any others in their character. So, how is it doing it things differently? Has the constitution even inadvertently envisaged such a type of state? So, there is not even a hint of, you know, uh, such a uh, wish uh, in, you know, from our makers of our constitution. They they simply did not want this, I mean, those clauses were not meant for serving such purposes. So the second demand is, you know, amend article 27, make it explicit no money is out of the consolidated fund of india or of a state shall be appropriated for advancement or promotion of any section of citizens so again if you see you know the first and the second demand also it's very very neutral and that's a point we want to emphasize in the end also we in, in this section in this demand of the hindu charter we are not asking anything explicitly for our community only and there are certain defici- defi- deficiencies please take them away so here also we are saying the same thing you know let it be let it not be appropriated for promotion of any religion. So this will end the politics of appeasement. Uh, obviously, I mean, if you if the state simply cannot do, then you cannot promise anything. Now they promise because at least a portion of it can be implemented. And therefore, it will bring in much needed religious neutrality. Okay, And thereby, you know, this restores the pride and self-confidence, at least stops the disincentivizing, like I said. Dimitude number three. so deracination of Hindus to self-loathe and disown their own religion, culture and history. So, there are a bunch of articles, we will quickly go through them and then we will get to some points about <coughs> how this is leading to deracination of Hindus. So, uh, article 15.5 was introduced in uh, 2005, you know there was this famous judgment in 2002 uh, related to educational institutions and uh, I think it was a Laven Judge Bench in TMA Pi uh, fantastic judgment, long one. Summary relate, you know, relevant to our discussion here is it said for most of the uh, aspects of running an educational institution, minority and majority are same. That's the summary of the judgment. Especially unaided institutions. If a particular institution is not getting help from the state in any form, then both are both majority schools and minority schools have the same rights. Okay. So, uh, I just want to pause here one second. When I say majority schools, minority schools, uh, are are you familiar with what that means? Because many people have this. Yeah. So, this is not a term invented by our group just to get some changes made here. Okay. The constitution actually leads to the formation of this so-called minority schools, minority colleges and non-minority schools, non-minority colleges. And it's only based on the religion of the uh, trust. I mean members of the trust that will run the, the, the institution or if you simplify it, religion of the management, nothing else counts. So if two-thirds of the members of the managing trust, managing committee of a school for example are Jains or Parsis, then it is a minority school. If they are Hindus, it is a majority school. A similar distinction exists on a linguistic basis. Also, I think Mohandas Paiji covered it very well, and there is a similar thing. But uh, he already made the point. I'll I'll come to that again. There also, it's you know kind of uh, uh, not beneficial to Hindus. So this is actually encoded in the Constitution. It actually calls out if in fact you try to open a school, you'll realize it in the in the first few sections of the form. Only they'll ask you, what is your religion or the religion of the committee? How many are Hindus? How many are in effect? They are asking that. So it's not invented by us. We are not. I mean, that we have heard that this this particular accusation a few times, saying, uh, you know, why do you want to classify schools on religious basis? We are not doing it. It already exists. And then Article 20. So this is uh, this was introduced to nullify that judgment which I spoke about, A 2002 judgment, which treated both institutions on equal footing with regard to uh, admission of students. You know, the state wanted to carve out a certain percentage of seats, and he said, "I want to be able to say 10%, 15%, 20% of the seats will be determined by me." Then the you know there was an objection saying you can't do that for minority schools. There was a you know there was a doubt, and the judgment while talking about that aspect, you know, the judgment covered a lot of things, but it said no. If it's an unaided minority uh, school, it's uh, I mean, uh, and and an unaided uh, majority. You, they are equal, but if it is an aided minority, the state can still interfere and say you know I have aided your uh, the formation of your institution so I can you know impose saying you know you keep twenty percent of your seats for whomever I determine. So they nullified it. they said the state shall have the power to you know uh, you know uh, impose admission to educational institutions i won't go into this word by word but this whole first section that i am highlighting here right the state grants itself the right to you know interfere in the matter of ad, uh, admission and then w- uh, look at this clause it says any type of institution whether aided or unaided by the state the the government can interfere other than the minority educational institutions so they explicitly left it out so this is again encoded saying we will not touch minority schools in terms of seats any other school we have the right And this was to negate that judgment. This is one clause. The second clause we are going to talk about is, no religious instruction shall be provided in any educational institution wholly maintained out of state funds. So on paper this looks good, right? I mean, secular state cannot interfere in religion and then, uh, uh, so therefore we will not teach. But today, even today, I think 70 odd percent overall nationwide, 70 percent of the schools are government schools. Maybe 80, 85, I don't know, maybe even 90 plus percent of our kids go to, I mean, go have secular education because they want a job, they want skills. So, we're literally saying a majority of our students go and spend the peak of their youth in institutions which shall not teach religion. And then we complain saying, you know, why are they, why why don't they have any trace of dharmic attitude in them? I mean, we are setting them up for that. I mean, they have no clue. I mean, there there, there is always this argument that we can teach it at home and all of that is fine. But the peak of their youth and the peak duration during that, the active time from, let's say, three or four years kid till about 18, he spends in schools and colleges and, you know, the exposure there is totally opposite. So, we don't stand a chance unless we correct this, irrespective of what theories we come up with there are some i mean there are some homeschooling theories and there are some theories saying culture and religion shall be taught by the parents all of that is good but if this deracination does not happen only then that will be effective right have a to make institutions like art of living isha Foundation. they started programs from the age of 8 for children right so it absolutely complements and supplements whatever is missing in education and i have seen in my own eyes my own son the way he is right I think uh, the point there is for no the important point there for this discussion right is if we dig into how many of these institutions which are doing fantastic job how are they managing to do it it's an exemption through the linguistic route I'm pretty sure you know a franchisee model or some other model they'll create because there is a loophole and you know you put so I'm from Karnataka i'll fund the money i'll create a committee two thirds of the members are my friends who are tamil or telugu or some you know some other language and i grain, you know and then i still need clout with the government and then i declare myself as a linguistic minority then i am able to teach all of those but the bigger problem there is i mean in our own nation in our own state why should we you know follow this route and how many can do it not everybody can do it and then of course uh, the kind of at least my in my opinion the killer article in our constitution which says all minorities whether based on religion or language shall have the right to establish and administer educational institutions of their choice absolutely nothing wrong with the way it is written but everything wrong with the way it is interpreted okay it says minorities shall get it courts and our governments have said only minorities will get it it's almost inexplicable why somebody would interpret it that way unless you have you know some other agenda but that's how this has been interpreted. So uh, there are various reasons that has led to deracination of Hindus, uh, banking on those three articles that I talked about, at least uh, two of them, article 28 and 30 have been there since inception and uh, you know banking on, on, on those systematically we've been deracinated, helped by some of the initial you know, people who are our education ministers so there's some clue here i think uh, you know whenever we share this material you can go and do some research on it on why we have highlighted obviously there'll be a certain flavor to what gets highlighted and you know that's what we have tried here uh, tried to show here industrial scale distortion of our history negation and then the opposite also glorification and you know highlighting of um, the rest and enormous patronization of pro left and pro majority academicians so therefore, we are in a situation where formal education means deracination. That's the that's what we, you know it's become. So again, very quickly. So there was a phase in between where, due to some inadvertent developments in our society, we kind of started coming back on track, so to say. And some strange triggers, right? You know, you all know, uh, or maybe not. The audience is mostly quite young, so some of us, at least, you know, we we've experienced this during the Ramayana and Mahabharata days. Streets used to be empty and coconuts getting broken in front of TV. Everybody starting to go to temples and yeah, yeah, I don't know how many lakhs of copies of Ramayana Mahabharata got sold and so on. But they did serve their purpose. There was like a, at least a halt to the speed with which we were eroding and then they came back. So, they realized this and then you know from the 90s onwards, I think control was rested back again and Maybe in the, speaking on serial terms, some of those really crap TV serials started taking over from that and you know made up for the loss of uh, you know whatever time they lost there. So in our syllabus also, therefore you know it's complete abramization. There are some examples here. You know uh, Karnataka social science textbook and you know in terms of what they talk, again it's fine. I think we've talked about it a little bit. Sri Lanka has a wonderful policy where they openly teach about all religions. Uh, to all kids, they say, "Let there be some basic groundwork done. that's fine, but if you look at this, it doesn't look like you're teaching all religions here okay, and there are numerous examples, and this is just in you know some pages from the Karnataka syllabus and uh, on on social media, you will find so many threads and so many posts related to this. yeah, this is not social, this is not science, this is not social studies but <laughs> So th- yeah, so this is religion, you know. Say, and this is all NCRT and all schools and colleges will teach this. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it's same throughout. This is like NCRT syllabus. So whoever is adopting, even state syllabuses, many of them do this. So again, like I said, right? If you, if the question is okay, the birthplace of you know Jesus Christ is this, is fine. But if there's a birthplace of Shankaracharya along with that, then the child gets a neutral opinion on this, a young kid. But if the only question is this, then over 15 years of training, you know what will happen. So it's not just in academics, in you know cinemas. I'm sure this is like a favorite topic. You know, uh, you know, I've seen the one favorite example I would like to quote is, anyway I will not take the name, but there's one series of comedy movies that comes, and in that movie, I've noticed every time there is at least like a 10-minute segment where there is some serious thing happening, and the you know the leading lady is upset and things are bad, and then they go to a church and pray. You know, throughout the in a comedy movie also they'll insert that so you you pick any you know mainstream movie i think there's no dispute at least on this fact on what they promote so fragmentation of uh, society has happened through this so the result of all of these is that our children are denied access to our own texts and civilizational knowledge i mean we know right in the uh, in the, the older system was that's the you know between 3 and or maybe between 5 to 18 is when the uh, child used to learn about our scriptures and Shastras and Dharma and now that is the exact phase we will not teach them that. So we are doing the opposite of what we are meant to do. So what to do? So there was this Bhakti movement in the medieval ages. Sri Tilak you know, used many instruments to rekindle uh, uh, the spirit of Dharma and like I mentioned the brief phase there. So therefore if we don't rekindle it, it is impossible to prevent its fragmentation. So, from a legal and constitutional angle, to do all of this, numerous steps are required. From the legal angle, what we are asking is repeal this Article 155, make that clause applicable to all of them, and then insert in Article 28 nothing in nothing in this Constitution shall be deemed to forbid the teaching of traditional Indian knowledge. So, this is absolutely vital. Okay. So, there is this argument that you know, the moment you start teaching uh, Hindu kids about Hindu religion, Sati may come Hindu back. Reports. Yeah. Weird arguments, you know, untouchability may come back, sati may come back. I mean, we have given up on untouchability. I mean, uh, there are exceptions. I don't deny it. Okay. But as a larger society, we have accepted that it's it's not acceptable. And the question of sati was not, you know, it's a minuscule problem even then. Our uh, scriptures, our books will talk about, you know, be truthful, ahimsa, don't injure another person, don't take money from another person. I mean all the, like I mentioned about the Dharmic Lakshanas, if you teach kids about these, how is it going to create a problem? In fact, they may may become soft, I would say that is a stronger argument if you want to argue against this, not the argument currently being done. And in article 30, which grants numerous rights, replace the word minorities with all sections of citizens. So very briefly, I want to touch upon this article 30, right? So there are three categories of powers that this article uh, grants. What can you teach, who will you teach and who will teach. Okay, very, very vital for any school or college, any educational institution. Today, the minority run educations have complete control and freedom to do all of those. Their syllabus, they can decide, they can choose to accept NCRT or whatever or they can teach in addition any other subject. They can decide on their principal, headmaster, teachers and they can decide whom to take. So, all three, they have complete Uh, freedom. We do not have freedom on any of these. So that's the, you know, it's like a really grave problem and just replacing one word will actually take care of it. So we we are requesting. So, you know, there's a bit of a background uh, May 2019 elections are going to be due and we have one private member bill introduced by Dr. Satyapal Singh Ji in 2016 which actually asks for the exact same thing that we have covered in this presentation. You know, amendments to five articles, but it's a private member bill. Uh, it had to be adopted by the government and then passed in both the Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha. We simply don't have any time left anymore. Though I think technically we have one small budget session still pending, it's not going to happen. So we've kind of, I mean, obviously we will not give up hope. So we have revised our demand now. What we are saying is in the new Lok Sabha term, under the assumption that uh, government favorable to these demands will come again in bracket uh, the again is in (laughs) bracket but uh, so we are saying please introduce either a government bill or if you want for whatever reasons you want to take an alternate approach go the private member approach bill approach again introduce it adopt it and please pass all of these amendments that we are requesting for. So uh, one final notion will this be anti-minority I think I need not explain this further right it's clear none of this is anti-minority we are saying give them whatever you want we in fact like it please give us the same. That's the summary of this slide, and you know it also furthers the mission of RSS. Uh, so I'll skip this and I'll go to this slide. This is the appeal, you know, to all of you. Please write to the Prime Minister asking for an end to this discrimination. Write to your local MP, MLA, whatever you know, uh, email or note or whatever, and ask them to read about Hindu charter demands and you know maybe make some public statements, give some public commitments if they agree with us. And in, try to get it included in their respective parties' manifesto. I mean, we may not be able to do all of this together, but in bits and pieces, if we keep including at that level, you know, state governments and central governments, this is possible. We have a Hindu Charter website where there is a petition that you can sign. Where, you know, we want to collect at least a few lakhs of signatures, and banking on that, we want to go to some of these government authorities, the Prime Minister, President, maybe, and make a petition. So please help us by signing. Please ask your friends and family to, you know, refer them to the website and ask them to sign. And then, you know, we'd really love if you can ar- help us arrange a Hindu charter talk in your city. So we've covered a few of the major cities. There's still a lot of work, and so you know, we are, um, partly because we are not interested, partly because we are not capable. We, are, we, you know, there are there are no dharnas or protests related to these. So it'll only be the Satvik way of doing things: talks and conferences and so on. So, okay. if you can join there and. How to approach you? So, the, the Hinducharter.org, I think Switzerland Foundation is the best place to <laughs> start off on this. So, from there, uh, you know, any of this can be done. But uh, that would be another important activity we solicit your help on. I write a statement from Jawleker who said that uh, very soon there will be a draft bill for education policy, new, new education system, policy, yeah. Which will be open for discussion but implemented okay. by the next. Year. Yeah. It may include all these things. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, yeah, that's like you are a very, very optimistic person. I will say. <laughs>